0: key stages in making data useful are the processing stages very often rather than the gathering stages and this means that uh, some of the predictions that you see about how it is that china or u.s companies can uh, become these kinds of all controlling entities which are able to predict what people are going to do and impose new forms of tyranny i think that these are probably somewhat overstated because they underestimate the difficulty that is actually involved in this
1: Welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, a completely student-run podcast at the Johns Hopkins University. My name is Lauren Zhao, and I am joined today by my co-hosts, Julia and Indy. Today, we will be discussing artificial intelligence. What is AI? Why has it increasingly been seen as a national security threat, and what are its effects on US-China competition? Joining us today to
2: parse through these complicated questions is Henry Farrell. Henry Farrell is an SNF Agora Institute professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, 2019 winner of the Friedrich Scheidel Prize for Politics and Technology, and editor-in-chief of the Monkey Cage blog at the Washington Post. He works in a variety of topics, including democracy, the politics of the internet, and international comparative political economy. He has written articles and book chapters, as well as two books, The Political Economy of Trust, Interests, Institutions, and Interform Cooperation, and with Abram Newman of Privacy and Power, The Transatlantic Fight Over Freedom and Security. We hope you enjoy today's episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs.
1: So thank you for joining us today, uh, Professor Farrell.
0: Thank you for having me on. I'm very happy to have the opportunity to have this conversation with you.
1: Great. So we would like to start by addressing what exactly is artificial intelligence and what is machine learning and how does it work?
0: So these are two terms which often get gelled together in modern debate. Artificial intelligence refers more generally to a wide variety of different means that we try to use to get computers to model in some way the kinds of intelligence that we might imagine sentient beings to happen, to have rather. And uh, machine learning is a set of techniques which is really emerged as the most prominent means of actually trying to achieve some of these uh, some of these effects so that it used to be 10 or 12 years ago that people used to think that it would be impossible for example for a computer ever to beat a human being at certain sophisticated strategic games such as go but with machine learning it turns out that if you have well trained machine learning systems it turns out to be trivially easy for these systems uh, if they are well developed to do that so machine learning I would say, is the most important, uh, most readily uh, readily uh, influential form of artificial intelligence that we have today. And so the two terms have blended together so that most of the time when people talk about artificial intelligence in the general press, they're really talking about machine learning.
1: Could you also describe for our listeners the current state of artificial intelligence technologies and their national security implications?
0: So the current state of artificial intelligence uh, technologies are that we are in an age of remarkable advances, in particular in this area of machine learning. So more or less what we've seen is that over the last 10 or 15 years, it's become possible, as I say, to do many things that human beings uh, used to think that only other human beings could do. So that, for example, if you think about Google Translate, uh, the way that Google Translate uh, can can translate phrases reasonably sophisticatedly from one language, language, to another. This is due to machine learning. They had an earlier version, and then they brought in this machine learning technique involving neural networks, and it became rapidly far more effective. And certainly, while on the one hand, you would want to have a human being to do, for example, translation of poetry or anything that involves uh, really sophisticated and subtle forms of language, machine learning does extremely well at translating uh, regular newspaper articles or technical manuals or all of these things which are uh, very, very important. Important. so machine so machine learning has really come on by leaps and bounds uh, and we are seeing new things possible every day and of course that has com- complicated consequences for national security because we could think about ways in which machine learning could be used for example to uh, to target actors in networks so there has been discussion which suggests although i don't know that anybody has proved it that uh, during the uh, during the obama administration there were efforts to apply machine learning techniques on Networks, social networks of perceived terrorists to figure out who might be the most appropriate targets for drone strikes. Uh, We can see how it is that machine learning could in the future, as it becomes ever more sophisticated, could become a means by which you could have really autonomous weapon systems that could take decisions for themselves without human intervention. If you think about this, this is a kind of problem which is very similar to the kinds of ways in which we have seen progress uh, towards self-driving cars, although we are not there, despite frequent predictions that we would be real soon. But uh, equally, if you can have self-driving cars, there's no reason in principle why you couldn't have self-driving tanks or self-flying drones that made many of their decisions on the fly. But of course, that leads to a whole bunch of very complicated and very difficult ethical and practical questions.
1: So kind of going off of national, sec- national security, how big of a role do you think AI will play in the future of international politics? And what are the technology's geopolitical implications? So this is
0: a very open question. I would say that at the moment, we have a lot of fear around the area of artificial intelligence and machine learning being expressed in national security circles, sometimes without a huge amount of understanding as to the limitations of what this kind of technology can or cannot do. So that on the one hand, there are people who suggest that uh, machine learning is the fundamental source of strategic advantage in the future. Uh, Vladimir Putin made a famous quote to this effect and that if you fall behind in the machine learning race, you're going to be at best and also ran in the race to uh, secure yourself against other countries. On the other hand, we see some people, including people who are reasonably technically sophisticated, who are more skeptical about the general uses of machine learning. And one of the interesting questions that we see with machine learning is that machine learning techniques can be applied against machine learning techniques in order to try to undermine them. So that, say, for example, for uh, example, you have these machine learning techniques, uh, which are called, uh, you know, which are called gener- uh, They are called generative adversarial networks where you have two machine learning uh, uh, technologies effectively competing with each other, two machine learning instances competing with each other, one seeking the, to fool the other into accepting a particular classification. Now, that sounds very abstract, but if you think about this more practically, it turns out that you can use adversarial instances, these uh, these the, these uh, forms of data which are uh, perhaps... Uh, you know, which are perhaps invisible to human eyes uh, by sort of placing a few blotches in uh, random seeming places. For example, on a road sign, you are able to fool a self-driving car potentially so that it doesn't see this road sign as being a stop sign. Instead, it sees this road sign as a go-ahead at 90 miles an hour sign. And uh, to the extent that you can use machine learning to f- to uh, frustrate other machine learning systems, it may well be that over the longer term, we have a much greater role for human beings in the decision process than uh, some of the more excitable scenarios would suggest at the moment.
2: So sort of expanding our discussion about artificial intelligence to more of a uh, international scale... Two of the biggest players in AI development right now are the United States and China, but the strategic competition between the U.S. and China is not a new phenomenon. It's been happening across uh, several economic, military, and political realms for decades. That being said, what does this new age of artificial intelligence mean for U.S.-China competition, and how are the two countries prioritizing AI development?
0: So both countries are prioritizing AI development, but in different ways. We really have yet to see what is going to happen in the United States. There has been discussion of having a substantial program to advance machine learning, to advance artificial intelligence for national security purposes in the United States, but we still have not seen the kind of concerted and coherent overall plan that uh, one might expect to uh, see if this, was a, if this was, as it almost surely will become, a true national security priority. In China, we do see uh, more discussion of the uses of machine learning and more planning around the uh, use of machine learning, albeit with is the proviso here, that very often these plans, they're kind of grand statements of strategy, and how they, how they uh, translate into specific incentives or specific programs uh, is very, very hard to say. Equally, it's hard to say how much uh, you're going to get an advantage from machine learning systems by just pouring money into this, uh, whether uh, money is the key constraint that you need to uh, face up to. And so where this is having direct and immediate consequences is that one of the areas where the United States perceives that it has a stranglehold on China is in the use of advanced semiconductors. And if you want to use sophisticated machine learning, you probably want to have the fastest semiconductors that you can uh, use. And so China does not have the uh, domestic manufacturing capacities to build sophisticated advanced semiconductors itself. And so the United States has been working together with its allies to try to deny access to advanced semiconductors to Chinese businesses on the expectation that this might hold back Chinese uh, development of machine learning as well, perhaps, as having economic consequences for the Chinese economy, which was certainly a big concern under the, uh, under the Trump administration. And we may expect to see some version of this reasonably soon. There is a speculation that the second big legislative act that uh, Biden is going to come out with is going to be some overall semiconductor supply chain security act, which probably will have some machine learning incentives of one sort or another larded into it.
3: Professor, you got into this a little bit already, but I kind of wanted to just give our audience a little bit more of an understanding of what's happening in the Trump administ- or in, in the U.S., but also um, between the Trump administration and the Biden administration and their work on the development of AI. So I was wondering if you could um, t- give us a little bit more insight on specifically how the Trump administration has handled this. Um, has he focused more on prioritizing domestic AI advancement, or has he maybe focused on inhibiting the further progress in China, as you just talked about?
0: Well, the Trump administration's approach to this, as in many other areas of the Trump administration's policy, was relatively incoherent it did not have any very strong generally developed strategy for dealing with these things instead it tended to lump together different questions in order to justify ways that it could uh, fundamentally hurt china so on the one hand we saw many people in the uh, trump administration such as uh, lighthizer who was a prominent trade official who just wanted to weaken the china chinese economy and to bring manufacturing home just because this is what he wanted already for for, uh, economic reasons. Uh, And so when there is a security justification for this as well, we see people like Lighthizer grabbing onto that uh, security justification. And we also see a very general... Uh, Approach to uh, really thinking about this in terms of trying to hurt China across a broad variety of different fronts of technology without necessarily thinking about what are priority areas or what are not priority areas, and without, as I say, any very strategic understanding of this. So the Biden administration, the language that they have been using informally is that they have been saying that they are going to be, like the Trump administration, they're going to be suspicious of China, but they're going to have an, uh, uh, an approach which is small yard and high walls. That is that rather than trying to go after the Chinese economy considered as a whole, they are going to probably focus on those specific strategic areas that they think are most essential to uh, the geopolitical competition with China. And they're going to focus on those and not worry so much, for example, about uh, targeting companies like Bike Dance, which uh, is responsible for, tick- for TikTok. Instead, they are probably going to focus much more specifically on areas like advanced semiconductors where there is clear dual military commercial use, and where there is a clear case uh, from the US perspective for uh, making these national security-based decisions. So I think what we can expect from the Biden administration is not Uh, for them to become suddenly very trusting of China because they are not going to be that, but they are going to be uh, somewhat more focused and specific in the ways in which they try to push back against Chinese uh, military and to some extent uh, economic hegemony in these uh, areas of networks and of technology.
1: So data has been kind of described as the new oil in the digital age, as the more data is accessible, the better AI and machine learning technologies can function. However, there are ethical and legal disputes about data privacy and data collection. So how have different countries approached this problem, namely the US and China?
0: Well, at the moment in China there isn't so they there the, there are the beginnings of working towards a uh, commercial privacy law which gives people some protection against the use of private data by commercial entities of one sort or another. There is a set of, you know, a set of uh, principles, a framework. Uh, we have yet to see how this is going to work out because it's relatively recent, uh, but that this might create a more constrictive uh, situation for Chinese businesses which are looking to use this data for business-related purposes. Where we are Less likely likely to see restrictions is in the kinds of places where business interest and, uh, and and national security interests, by which I mean not only competition with the United States but also questions such as the treatment of the Uyghur population question, which is as uh, people know is just uh, dramatically horrible at the moment, uh, questions of uh, social order as China sees it, uh, we are going to see probably not very much at all in the way of restrictions in this particular area. The United States, in contrast, has a privacy setup which is very very unrestrictive of commercial data uh, there is very little in the way of real controls on what uh, us companies can do with your personal data they can buy it they can sell it they can do all of these things with it but there is uh, some important restrictions on what the government can do with your data the so-called 1974 privacy act contains a list of reasonably rigid protections that are supposed to prevent the government from using data in the ways that you uh in ways that you don't want them to do. But then the question behind all of this is whether or not data is indeed the new oil, as some people have said. I saw an analogy, I can't remember who, used on Twitter in the last week or so, said that this talk of data being the new oil doesn't get it right. What data is, it's the new sand, so if you think about sand, uh, sand looks you know so there's lots of it. There's tons and tons of it. You can go to any beach, any desert in the world, and you can cart away thousands of tons without uh, there being an appreciable diminution in the supply. Uh, if you process the sand in a really sophisticated way, you generate silicon. Silicon is uh, effectively you know so, uh, you know silicon is the major component of sand, and if you turn it into silicon, and then you turn these into silicon wafers, you can have super sophisticated and super super strategically important chips, which can give you a commercial or a military advantage. Uh, But the relationship between sand and silicon chips is much less uh, straightforward than people imagine it is. It takes a lot of processing, and the key stages in making data useful are the processing stages very often rather than the gathering stages. And this means that uh, some of the predictions that you see about how it is that China... Our U.S. companies can uh, become these kinds of all-controlling entities which are able to predict what people are going to do and impose new forms of tyranny. I think that these are probably somewhat overstated because they underestimate the difficulty that is actually involved in this.
1: So in China, they've been implementing a social credit system. And could you describe what this is? And why should the U.S. or the West really care about this?
0: So the social credit system is something that I think is badly understood in the uh, West. And here I am, I should say, I'm not channeling my own ideas on this. I'm channeling, channeling the ideas of a brilliant young sociologist, a young woman, Ahmed, who has written a great piece for Logic, which is a magazine that I recommend to your viewers, or your, re- your listeners rather, as, as something that if they're interested in these questions, this is the place to go for really sophisticated thinking. And so what Ahmed says is that you see this set of arguments, which which effectively, they portray the social credit system as a all-reaching, all-controlling system by which people are punished by the Chinese state for behaving in ways which are antisocial, that this ties in with various surveillance networks, this ties in with facial recognition, in ways that are creating this completely regimented society in China. And so what Ahmed argues is that instead of that social credit system, it certainly is important But it isn't nearly as pervasive as all that. Instead, it is a set of semi-connected systems, which in some ways, they resemble much more than this all-seeing totalitarian state. They resemble the kind of institutions that we have in the United States around fair credit reporting, about reporting of criminal convictions, all of these forms of implicit control which have developed in a privatized way in the United States, or sometimes in a semi-state way, that these are the kinds of analogies that you should be looking for. That is not to say that social credit might not develop over time in ways that make it more sinister and more creepy. If it does begin to gather new technologies into itself, uh, that could certainly be something which is pretty worrying. But uh, one could equally say that many of the models that we have in the West of what has been called sometimes surveillance capitalism have much of the same kind of features to them. And they have many of the same kinds of ubiquitous monitoring. And you, know, if you want to think about this way, uh, nearly all of us carry around these universal monitoring devices in our pockets. Uh, the, these po- these devices that report to the mothership every couple of minutes about where we are, about what we're doing, about what we're watching, about uh, how we're reacting to things. Uh, and uh, you know, sort of if we're in a, a shopping mall, it could well be that there is a system that is telling telling the owners of the mall which uh, aisles you are dawdling by and which aisles you're not paying attention to. And of course, I'm talking here about mobile phones. We carry these ubiquitous surveillance devices around with us all the time in this capitalist system, and we don't pay any attention to that. And so I think what Ahmed is arguing is that the two different forms of surveillance have a lot more in common than we might think.
2: So going off of what you said about sort of our constantly being monitored through um, what is always with us, our smartphones... Should, how should we be caring about the data that is being transmitted every, every couple of minutes from our smartphones? How do we, what is the current state of that data where it's going and why should consumers care about it?
0: Well, it could be you know if you think about it this way, some of the rioters at the Capitol on January sixth, they have discovered very very quickly why they should care about it, because these uh, you know information from their cell phones is being used to infer whether or not they actually penetrated into the Capitol, and they are facing substantial felony convictions as a result. Obviously, that is an extreme case. Uh, and so I guess what you could say is that in some ways, this may be something that is uh, going to be, uh, it can have benefits for you. It could well be, and this is the argument that advertisers make, that you are, you know, by, by gathering this information about you, advertisers are then able to match you together with products that you might be interested in buying much more straightforwardly than would be possible if they didn't have this kind of data this kind of information, and so, uh, but and the negative consequences are that this also allows them to uh, build up very sophisticated profiles of you, and then they effectively they market you to their real customers. You know, if you are a, are a Facebook u- user, you are not the customer of Facebook. The actual customers, the people who the business model is built upon, are the uh, businesses which then bid in these uh, automated markets within Facebook for access over a 24-hour period to the Facebook feeds, say of uh, middle-aged uh, white professors in the uh, D.C. metropolitan area. And uh, you have some product, which, God help you, why uh, you would want to market a product to this particularly grim demographic, but you have this product which you can then market. And so, so effectively, you don't have any understanding of the world that is being created around you, and of the way in which information about you is being used on a much larger scale. Now, of course, there are reasons why you might be less worried than that. It isn't, for example, all that clear that this kind of personalized marketing is really all that effective. There's a great book by a guy called Tim Huang, which came out about nine months ago, which uh, suggests that, in fact, the... uh, Benefits for advertisers are much lower than anticipated, but you can also see ways in which this information can be used to put together profiles, which as at a minimum are creepy, and a max, at a maximum, could be used to make inferences about you that could really affect your life choices. So it could well be, say for example, that uh, if this information is used to profile you in ways that, for example, suggest that you are a better or worse credit risk, uh, then you may get products marketed to you on the basis of whether or not you look to be somebody who goes to the right stores. You know, so sort of who shops in, uh, I don't know, Williams Sonoma rather than in the uh, local uh, Walmart. And uh, then you begin to get all of these uh, uh, these financial products uh, marketed to you, which are pretty sweet deals, relatively speaking. Whereas if you're somebody who is perhaps from a different social profile, you may, uh, in fact, be giving this information without realizing it. And you may be finding yourself in a situation where the only financial opportunities that you have opened up to you are effectively these companies that I guess you see advertising in uh, the New York subway. Uh, you're more or less offering credit, no questions asked. On a pretty uh, prohibitive interest rates or whatever. So uh, these are the ways in which this can uh, this information can be used to profile you and to really shape in subtle but nonetheless real ways what opportunities you have access to and what opportunities you do not.
3: So from from what you just said, Professor, it sounds like this this um, this technology can be used in a way that might invade on um, people's privacy. So I'm I'm wondering. From a policy perspective, what has the United States do or what can they do uh, in order to, I guess, prevent these negative effects, but also in a way, keep, keep up with, the, with China, who has already been, uh, you know, going on towards building better AI technology?
0: It's a really tough question. And there are some trade-offs here because... One of the questions that I think people are asking at the moment is whether or not there is a trade-off between privacy and security. And uh, there are some immediately obvious ways in which you could see this being so. That, uh, say, for example, there is a situation where there is a major security breach of a uh, business uh, that uh, you know, so that 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 it is that that lots of information is leaked out from that bi- business about the uh, you know about private individuals and what have you. Uh, Then um, sort of uh, trying to work together, trying to create systems that will stop that from happening may require cooperation, which involves the, uh, the sharing of information between business and the government over sort of what kinds of people are using this and may um, sometimes involve uh, information which is uh, directly personally sensitive or whatever. And you have seen examples of this, for example, another example that I'm familiar with. uh, Back in the 1990s, um, which I know is a horrifically long period of time ago, uh, I did research on uh, EU-US arguments over how to come up with some kind of a common framework for dealing with the differences that they had over privacy. And one of the issues that uh, was a big uh, sticking point was the issue of data on, uh, on people on airplanes, and what kind of meals they, provided, they ate, and whether or not sort of, this would provide information about their religious identity, and whether or not that might be problematic or non-problematic. And I can remember talking to the US negotiator, who was kind of uh, saying, what a crazy European thing. But of course, when we Saw, see the kinds of ethnic profiling and the relationship to uh, access to airplanes, which we saw happening after September 11th. It doesn't become nearly as uh, as 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 uh, crazy seeming as it does. But you can also see ways. You know, so the more you know, so the trade off. I think in an abstract way is this: that the more that you want to. St- Okay, put it this way. So, if you think about traditional security, traditional security is operating in a world in which most of the key security questions happen in the national security space. That is, we're talking about armies, we're talking about guns, we're talking about bombs. And there it is pretty easy to see ways in which you can make trade offs. Uh, and the, the trade offs are not that uh, complicated that you, uh, you know, when you're a member of the US Army, uh, you, 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 you. To some extent, you know, you, you are a member of the system where you you effectively put aside some of your rights, at least, to uh, try and protect the uh, U.S. more generally. Uh, and uh, when we talk about information, you sort know, of about bo- guns and bombs and defences. This is obviously something where, if you reveal this information, uh, you are providing help to the enemy, which could be perceived as being really problematic. So, when we're in that world in which all of the situ- all of the real security questions are within the military space, or most of them are, then we don't have all that much trade-off. But when we move into a world where all of the devices that we use are potentially information gathering devices, where your fridge is uh, perhaps keeping a track of what kinds of foods are or are not going into it, where your uh, personal devices are keeping uh, tracks of information, then suddenly you enter into a world in which there is a much, much murkier relationship between national security, because everything in a certain sense has become a security vulnerability, which can be uh, exploited, and between personal liberties such as privacy, because uh, to the extent that the national security state says we need information on this, we need information on that, it directly impinges upon your privacy in ways that, for example, uh, protections for national security secrets do not. And so that's the set of uh, trade offs we face. And I think, you know, so just as a uh, final note, uh, some, there's a fantastic example of how it is that this stuff has become so, so ubiquitous that we don't pay attention to it in a really great Netflix show, which I recommend to you called Lupin. It's a French show, uh, but with subtitles, and it's just super fun. But one of the episodes has this, uh, it's an episode about uh, surveillance, where the uh, main character is uh, putting in surveillance devices on a crooked police officer. And the police officer thinks that he's gotten rid of all of the devices. What he does not realize is that he's got this uh, Amazon uh, Alexa ty- uh, or Amazon or Alexa type of uh, device. And that this is the device that is really providing all of the information that uh, his adversary, the uh, hero of the show, can use in order to nail him down and show the bad stuff that he has been up to. And that's the world we're in. That's the world. It's a world where so many of our devices can listen, can observe, can talk, and that creates a whole set of new security problems.
2: So now I'd like to turn to some of the work that you've done in the field. So you coined the term weaponized interdependence in a paper you wrote recently, and I believe in a book you're about to publish, um, which is, which refers to global economic and digital networks. So could you, please, could you please briefly describe this term for our listeners and how it relates to data flows and uneven data collection between states?
0: Absolutely. So the idea that my co-author, Abe Newman, and I had was something like the following, that if you look at the ways that we think about the world uh, that we live in, a lot of people talk about economic globalization, and they talk about the ways in which uh, the uh, globalized world relies upon all of these networks, and it also means that uh, we are becoming much more interdependent with each other, so that what happens in the United States matters much more for China and vice versa than when the two economies were were previously relatively separate from each other. And so by and large, people have until relatively recently thought about this as being a really good thing, as being something that is going to project us into a world where there is not so much in the way of strategic maneuvering among states, not so much in the way of coercion of the sort that we saw in the Cold War. Instead, we're moving into a world of markets. And so what Abe and I decided is that we started looking around a few years ago and we started realizing that, in fact, the world wasn't operating this kind of way, that if you looked at how interdependence actually worked, it worked thanks to these networks, these networks Uh, such as financial networks, such as uh, trade networks, manufacturing networks, the internet. And all of these turned out to be much, much more centralized than anybody realized. And because they were centralized, they offered opportunities for power, and in particular, for the United States to exercise power against other uh, countries, to uh, cut entire countries such as uh, Iran out of the global financial system. And so we decided that we wanted to start trying to figure out how this works. So we wrote this piece, which uh, was for a journal called International Security. It's an academic piece, but I think insofar as academic pieces are readable, it's a reasonably readable piece. And then uh, when we wrote it, we were thinking mostly about problems such as uh, sanctions, even Economic sanctions in Iran, but then, of course, as we were uh, as we were uh, finishing writing it, and as as the uh, as we began to write other stuff, the uh, situation between the United States and China began to blow up. And it suddenly became apparent that all of these problems of interdependence really helped us to understand how it was, for example, that these fights over semiconductors, these fights over the Chinese telecommunications company Huawei, how all of these were working, all of these fit pretty well into the kind of broad ideas that we uh, had to come up with. And so since then, we have just been uh, writing, 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 and uh, we hope to have a, uh, we've got one book, which is a more academic book written uh, and uh, co-authored and co-edited. uh, Which looks at this from a variety of perspectives. And we're hoping to have another more fun book, which we are going to be writing over the next 18 months or so.
3: And, Professor, looking into the future, in your opinion, what might a world that's dominated by artificial intelligence look like, especially if we were to continue on our current trajectory?
0: So, the way that a lot of people think about this, they think about this in science fictional terms. You know, so you have people like, for example, Mark Zuckerberg, who came up with this idea, and you know he thinks about Facebook, or at least he used to think about Facebook, and probably still does in his heart of hearts, as being a really utopian technology, as being a way of bringing the world together, allowing people to talk together, and uh, creating uh, universal freedom and concentrated awesome. So you've got this utopian kind of vision of things. Then more recently, as things have begun to go badly wrong, we've seen more and more dystopian visions, that is, Visions of how this is creating this kind of universal form of tyranny, turning both democracies, democracies and authoritarian countries into uh, hellholes of uh, ubiquitous surveillance, and how we are trapped in this uh, historical, uh, this historical trap, which we simply are going to be unable to get out of because the technologies have beckoned us into this world of possibilities, which are all about possibilities of limiting our freedom and limiting our autonomy, rather than allowing us to exercise it. But when I think about this world, I think about another much more obscure science fiction writer uh, called Philip K. Dick from the 1960s and 1970s. If you know the film Blade Runner, uh, it was made uh, based on one of his novels, and there have been many other movies based on his novels, uh, most of which have not been particularly good. But he has a vision of a future, which is with all of these ubiquitous t- technologies, but none of them working particularly well. And so I think that is the most probable world that we're going to find ourselves and that is a world in which these uh, technologies, they uh they're important, they reshape our economies, but they never quite work as well as they're supposed to. That uh, when you have Google or Alexa or Siri or whatever, it keeps on being activated by idiotic phrases that uh, you use in your everyday speech. It doesn't quite get you the stuff that you want to get much of the time. And in which surveillance and uh, all of these things, they're important, but also people figure out and sort of uh, partial ways of blocking them. And so you end up in a much more complicated mess kind of world, than either the vision of pure dystopia or pure utopia would predict that you end up in.
1: Great. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Farrell. Um, It was really informative.
0: Well, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. It's great to see Hopkins students do this, and I'm super happy to be able to talk to you.
1: Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.